If you would, go ahead and be seated. Ushers, if you will come and uh, receive the tithes and offerings and prayer requests of the people. As they are doing that, let me give you a, a quick remind on what it is we're, we're doing right now. We're in a series, we're talking about divine impact. We're, we're talking about the work that God is doing in the world and that He's called us to be a part of. Uh, again, God is at work. There's no doubt about that. The question is, are we? Are we involved in what God is doing in the world? And, and this is the question I hope that as we look at Scripture together, it haunts you a little bit, bugs you a little bit, causes you to, to have some conversations about what you're doing with your time and your mental and emotional energy and your money. Because if this stuff is true, if the Bible is true and what, what we're being taught in Scripture is true, then then there's, there's a lot that is required of us. We, we talked last week about how the Scripture teaches us that how we say and what we say is important as it pertains to making disciples. Today we want to talk about the, the fact that encouragement is crucial in this process. All along the way, we've been mindful of, of what it is we are as a church family. Uh, we're going to say this over and over again, and just as a reminder, especially in this series, that, that Living Hope, we are a family of disciples impacting our homes, our neighbors, and every generation with the hope of Jesus. Question, are you making this happen? Where you live, where you work, where you learn, where you hang out and play, is this what you're thinking about? Is this a part of, of what you're doing in those places. Uh, God is calling you to that, calling us to that. And strangely enough, as we do that, as we live out the Great Commission, we, we become an encouragement to others. Not only in, in what we say and how we say it, but, but our very lives. You know, encouragement is crucial. I, I, I have not always believed that. I, I, I'm kind of a truth guy. So typically, uh, my natural instinct is to say, okay, this is true, do it, and you'll feel good about it later. But what I'm finding is affections are important. Feelings are important. And, and our emotions can lead us to do some things that are really, really hard. And that's where encouragement comes in. It moves us. It's, it's beyond facts. It, it, it really has a part of our feelings. And I think I learned this in a lot of ways, but one of the places I really learned this was in running a half marathon. I, I was hearing that they were going to have people lining the streets, cheering for us as we were running. And I just thought, what a waste of time. I'm going to have my, my earphones in. I'm going to have my jam going. I'm going to be running. It doesn't matter if other people there are cheering until I hit the seventh mile. And suddenly I didn't have my jam on. And I really thought about quitting. And all these people were yelling, you can do it. You can do it. And I would have had to walk through all of those people to, to quit, which would have been kind of awkward. But... They kept cheering me on, cheering me on. So I kept going and I hit my second win and my third win and my 10th win till I was about a mile out and I was hurting. I mean, I hurt so bad. And I could hear the roar of people encouraging as we were getting closer and closer to Titan Stadium. We were about a mile out and a, and a friend of mine, I call him a friend, I use that term loosely, came along and, and, and said hey to me. And he smacked me on my rear so hard. I no longer felt the other pain. It hurt so bad. 
And, and my, my new goal was to kill him. And so I, I couldn't catch him. He was, he was way, way, way too good. So after the desire to kill him went away and I wanted to quit again, the crowd, right? You can do it. You can do it. And it was amazing coming that quarter mile and all these people. I found myself running so hard. And I thought, this is crazy. These people, what they're saying is encouraging. It's moving. It's strengthening me. That is the power of encouragement. God made us as human beings to be encouraged and to be an encouragement. And that's what our text teaches us how to do today. We're going to look at the lives of three men, Tychicus, Onesimus, and the Apostle Paul. Now, we read about them in Colossians, which has been our book of study for this year. If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, let's go to Colossians chapter 4. And Elle's going to come. She's going to read for us verses 7 through 9. So let's all stand together in honor of God's word as uh, she reads the this, this scripture and, and then uh, give it some explanation and some challenge. Elle, read that for us. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has touched place here. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Al. If you guys would, go ahead and, and be seated. Again, these guys, these three guys, Tychicus and Esmus and Paul, very different, different backgrounds, different race, same faith, same Lord, strong encouragement to the church, examples for us. Let me tell you a little bit about these guys. Let me first start with Tychicus, okay? So he was Asian. And we first read about him in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. Uh, he was trusted. He was one of Paul's companions. He joined Paul in his missionary journeys. And so when there was a prophecy announcing that there would be a famine in Palestine, in, this, in, the, in Jerusalem, uh, the Western churches, um, uh, Church of Corinth, uh, Thessalonica, uh, Macedonia, other churches began to take up an offering. And so Tychicus was a part of that. He was a part of receiving those financial resources. And then he was a part of transporting those financial resources to the church there in Jerusalem. So he was very trusted. He was someone that Paul leaned on. After they got into Jerusalem, of course, Paul was arrested. And it appears that Tychicus remained with him as Paul was dealing with the arrest and the trials and everything that was, that was going on there. And so as the Apostle Paul began to write these what we call prison epistles, he trusted Tychicus to take them. So the letter that we've been studying, the book of the Bible known as Colossians, was a letter, as you know now, written to the church at Colossae. Well, he trusted Tychicus to transport that letter. And not just this letter, but Philemon as well, another one of the New Testament books uh, that is now available to us because of this faithful minister. He also took responsibility for carrying the book of Ephesians. He took that. Imagine the responsibility of carrying the original manuscript of the Bible. I mean, that's pretty heavy right there. I mean, I, you know, I'm barely trusted with a dog, much less, right? The original manuscripts. But this is this guy, Tychicus. He was that well-respected. He was that well-trusted, and he was an encouragement. He has an eternal legacy. I think we read about it in Ephesians chapter 6. This is his eternal legacy, in my opinion. 
so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. He was an encouragement. He was a trusted minister. He was someone that others could model themselves after. He was a disciple of Jesus Christ, making disciples of Jesus Christ. That's Tychicus. Now, Onesimus. Onesimus is, uh, was a slave. He had run away from his master, Philemon. He's actually from Colossae. And he did what a lot of slaves would do in that day. He would find a large city where he could kind of blend in with the culture, get a job, and, and hopefully start a new life without getting caught. Well, while he was in Rome, of course, the Apostle Paul was in prison in Rome. Providentially, he meets Paul. He becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, and Paul begins to disciple this man in Christ Jesus. And so when it came time for this message to be sent to the church at Colossae, uh, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote what is now our book of the Bible, Philemon, to Philemon. Now, Philemon was the guy whose house that the church at Colossae met in. He was very wealthy, and Onesimus belonged to him. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, Philemon, along with this letter, Colossae, which is our book, Colossians, so that these two men could be restored to one another. The Apostle Paul shared how this man, Onesimus, had become a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And now he was willing to do the hard thing, which is to come home and to seek restoration in their relationship. And Onesimus was faithful. I believe he has an eternal legacy. Philemon uh, 16 says this about him. He's a beloved brother, especially to me. That was what Paul said. But how much more to you, Philemon, both in the, look at this, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Can I tell you? It's been probably 2,000 years since, since those men died and they entered into heaven. You know, they probably had some, some relational conflict they had to deal with. Probably had some financial duress to deal with. Probably had some reputation and some other issues that they had to, to, to work through. All that anxiety, all that anger, all that pain. Can I tell you, 2,000 years later, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters now is that they did what they did to the glory and to the praise of God. Friends, I know some of you sit here today and, and you've got physical pain, you've got financial struggles, you've got vocational challenges, you're, you're struggling in school, you're struggling with things. Friends, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I promise you, a hundred years, the issue you're dealing with right now it's not going to be the issue. All that will matter is did you honor Jesus Christ with what it was you were faced with? What will matter to you a hundred years from now was did you honor God with what you were faced with? I love D.A. Carson. He's one of my favorite, favorite uh, biblical theologians. He says this. He says, all the aches and pains, all the problems of the world, it's nothing that a good resurrection can't fix. So listen, if what you're facing, if a good resurrection can fix it, don't let it destroy you. Let, it, let this be a reminder to you that you are to walk through whatever this is to the praise of God. And if you will honor him and love him and reveal your authentic faith through it a hundred years from now, that's all you're going to care about. So here is Onesimus. He made some hard decisions, did some hard things because it was right and he honored God. 
Last but not least, the Apostle Paul. Now, most of you are very familiar with the Apostle Paul. He was trained to be a Pharisee. He was very influential, very powerful. He was trained under uh, the scholar Gamaliel, which gave him a, a lot of credibility. He hated the church. He sought to destroy the church. Uh, he was given responsibility to imprison those who belonged to the way. As he was making his way, and you can read about this in Acts chapter 9, to Damascus to arrest uh, the people of the church there, Jesus Christ met him on that road. And the apostle uh, at the time, Saul, the person Saul, was blinded and had to deal with the reality that Jesus Christ is Messiah. He went into Damascus there, uh, he was healed, the, the, the blindness was removed, and he began to immediately share what had happened to him and to begin to be one who spoke on behalf of Christ and shared the gospel. Now, he, the story kind of gets a little uh, sketchy there. We know he went to Damascus for about, uh, I'm sorry, not Damascus, to Arabia for about 14 years. He spent some time, some years, trying to and seeking to understand his theology. He'd been trained as a Pharisee. He believed in the authority of Scripture. Now he'd met the Messiah that the Old Testament promised. And what we read, in, in especially in letters like the, the letter to the Romans, the, our book of Romans, is this solid theology that, that he was, was gifted to be able to communicate to us, the church. But you know what's funny? When the Apostle Paul finally made it to Jerusalem... The church leaders, the apostles of the day, wouldn't meet with him. See, he had this reputation of a person who, who was not a Christ follower. And so they, they, were, they were uneasy. They were unwilling to receive him. You know, recently, and I say recently, yesterday, uh, social media just exploded with a conversation among Christians about an, a, a new believer and, and uh, apparently uh, a rap uh, pop artist named Kanye West has come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And what is, well, praise God, yeah. So what is interesting is there are people who are saying, are you sure? I mean, have you heard some of his other albums? Is this legit? Friends, I'm gonna tell you something. When I was saved, There's people that didn't believe it. I mean, I don't know if some of you are like me and you grew up the way I grew up and, and your conversion to Christ was highly questionable and doubtful. Listen, is Kanye, is Kanye a, a Christian? God knows. I tell you this, I listened to the album twice yesterday while I was working out. I like it. And you know what he does on one of the albums? He asks that we pray for him. Let's bow our heads. Father God, you are a gracious God and you can save anybody. So we pray for Kanye West that he is our brother in Christ. Lord, he has a huge stage. He has a massive reputation. Everything he says and does is going to be watched. He's gonna make mistakes. God, keep him, guide him, use him, bless him. I know and I understand there's family and friends that, that, that are not... Uh, for this, the world is certainly not. So Lord, if he is indeed yours, bless him. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You might wanna go online if you follow him and let him know we prayed for him this morning and encourage him because who knows? Recently, there were two people who came to Saving Faith in the prison. Who's to say who is and is not a believer? These who 
have professed Jesus Christ, one of which will be baptized this Friday, committed heinous crimes. Are they saved? I heard this recently, and I think this would be a good way to live. <laughs> it was a message, it was like a billboard that said, love everybody, I'll sort them out, God. <laughs> I think that's a pretty good way to go. Love everybody. You know, if someone confesses Jesus Christ, love them. Pray for them. Encourage them. If they fail, try to lift them up. If they continue to wander away, 1 John 2.19 says they weren't really of us. But if it's just a struggle like that we all face, pray for them. Encourage them. Love them. God will sort them out. So here's the Apostle Paul comes to saving faith. And the church doubted him. So what did God send? He sent a guy by the name of Barnabas. Now that wasn't his real name. That was his nickname. His nickname meant, Barnabas means son of encouragement. How cool of a nickname is that? How would you like it when you walked into a room and they're like, hey, son of encouragement, get over here, man. That was his name. And so what happened was Barnabas went and found Paul and introduced him and, and, and used his influence and his name to give the apostle Paul standing with the other apostles. Of course, we know the rest of the story. The apostle Paul wrote a majority of the New Testament and became the authoritative apostle on much of our doctrine. God saved him. These three men couldn't be more different. Tychicus, Asian. You got Onesimus, Greek. And you got Paul, a Jew. Different backgrounds, different language, different culture. Same Lord, same faith. All three of them were an encouragement. And what we can learn from these three men are the three things that disciple makers encourage others with. Take note of these three things. First of all, disciple makers encourage others with the Father's grace in them. Each of them was saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. As anyone who is truly saved is saved. It is by grace. It is not something that we can earn. It, it's not because we're smarter. It's not because that, that we've got something uh, tangible, something created, something that, that will one day pass away that others don't have. Friends, please listen. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, know people are watching you. And unless you tell them otherwise, they're going to assume it's a created thing, not God, that has given you the passion to love your, your family and, and to live the way you live. Because this idea that Jesus Christ was God, lived a holy life, died for our sins and was raised on the third day and is returning again is crazy to some people. It makes absolutely no sense. I remember being one of those people who thought this makes no sense. But friends, it does make sense. And we need to explain to people why it makes sense. And if you're not telling people why it is you love your family, love your spouse, love your kids, work as hard as you do, seek to honor God in all things, unless you tell them it's because of Jesus Christ, they're gonna assume it's something else. We must be diligent in giving glory to God. And, and one of the best ways I have found to do that is using the three circles. He's basically explaining, hey, we know that God, God's design was harmony, but we have all sinned and created pain and brokenness in the world. But what God calls us to is a life where we repent. We turn away from self-sufficiency. We turn away from, from, from selfishness and we say, you know what? It's not about me. It's not what I can do because I can't fix me. I can't fix this world, but I know who can. And I've trusted in the gospel. I've trusted in the good news that God became one of us, died for our sins, was raised on the third day and is soon returning. And those who believe this have been given a new life. They can recover and pursue God's design. 
If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, this is your story. You have a redemptive story. Let me ask you, do you have a redemptive story? I'm not asking you, do you go to church? I'm not asking if you've ever read the Bible. I'm not asking if you're a nice person. Do you have a redemptive story? A redemptive story, there's three parts to it. All right, the first part is this. You can talk about what your life was like before Jesus. Some of you, you can't remember life without Jesus. You were saved at a young age. You were blessed to have a mom and dad who prayed for you, talked about the Lord, talked about his word, talked about the Holy Spirit, talked about Jesus, and and you can't remember not believing. I consistently remind my children, I try to anyway, of their salvation story. I, I reminded my oldest son this summer, I, I, I consistently try to speak to, to uh, uh, my youngest son about their salvation story and, and my daughter, because if you're not careful, you'll just assume, well, I've always been a Christian. No, only Jesus has only always been a Christian. The rest of us are born sinners. Now me, my story, I can tell you what it's like. I, I can remember what it felt like to be separated from God, to live in darkness. I can remember that pain. Some of you can as well. But here's what I know about every single person who has a redemptive story. They know what it is. They know something of life without Jesus. Then they can acknowledge that they were born separated from God because the wages of sin, because they are sinners. None of us are born perfect. And because of that, we sin and there's brokenness. And we can speak to that. Second thing, how you came to saving faith in Jesus. For some of you, it was, a, it was a moment. I can tell you the moment. June 28, 1988. I know it's impossible to imagine that I'm that old, but it's true. June 28, 1988. I can take you to the spot in the house where I was on my knees, where I, where I came to Saving Faith. Some of you, it's a season. You can remember the summer. You can kind of remember what's going on. Some of you, it was at camp. Some of you, it was at a revival. Some of you, it, it, was, it was at a service. But you can speak to, I went from trusting in me, believing in me, believing in something else, to repenting and turning to Jesus and trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Third thing you can share is this. You can answer how your life has changed and is changing by the grace of God. You can speak to not only what God has done, but what he is doing right now in your life. Because Philippians 1.6 is true. Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So there's gonna come a day when those of us who believe don't have to fight sin anymore. There's gonna come a day when we will no longer be tempted. We will no longer be in this fallen world and fallen flesh. And we won't have to battle sin anymore. Until that day, we will have to fight every single day against sin. We'll have to battle our flesh. And the more you battle that flesh and the victory that comes through the gospel is secured, the more free you will be. When it comes to the three circles, you have to understand that it's not just a one step, it's not just a one time, it's not just a, oh yeah, I got that, I'm good now. No, if you're genuinely saved, if you have a redemptive story, your story says, this is what I was. This is what happened when I changed, and this is now what is happening. And that transformation happens by the gospel. Let me explain. When you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, you are aware that that the world and you are not as you should be. 
You acknowledge your sin and the brokenness that it's caused, and you repent and believe the gospel to be saved, to be justified. And you begin to pursue and recover God's design. And as you do that, as you pursue and recover God's design and you become more like Jesus, you become more sensitive to the sin in your flesh. And as you see the brokenness that your sin is causing between you and God, with with you within, with you and others, you repent of it. And you say, I believe, help my unbelief. I repent, I don't wanna live this way. In the power of the gospel, you believe not for salvation, but for sanctification. You're becoming more and more like Jesus. It's not by, listen to me, it's not by willpower, it's by gospel power. It's by trusting in the power of the resurrected Christ in the, in, in the Holy Spirit that you pursue and recover God's design. So guess what happens? You can praise God for that, that's good. So look, as you become more like Jesus, right? So you're, you're, you're saved, you, you believe, now you're becoming more like Jesus, you repent of sin in your flesh and you become more like Jesus, guess what happens? The closer you get to God, the more sensitive you become to sin. And the more you hate it. And the more you see it and you don't want to be a part of it. So you repent of it. And you're focused more on Jesus, which makes you more like Jesus, which makes you more sensitive to sin, which you hate it more, which makes you repent, which makes you more like Jesus, which makes you more sensitive, which makes you hate sin. And this is what you do your whole life. You're you're, you're just becoming more and more like Jesus. You hate sin more. You repent of it more. You're renewed more and more. This is what revival looks like. It's a person who says, I must be like Jesus. I must know him more. I love him more. I want to serve him more. I, 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 I am overwhelmed with him. This is the Christian life. This is the grace of God. This is what God's grace does. Has God's grace done that to you? Are you just a church goer? Are you just a nice person? You're just a person out there trying. Friends, Disciple makers, they encourage others with the Father's grace in them. Secondly, disciple makers encourage others with the Son's mission through them. John 20, 21, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so now I am sending you. We are all sent on mission. Now, Tychicus, Onesimus, Paul, each of them had natural abilities. They came from specific backgrounds and and, and they had opportunities. They also had spiritual gifts. Every child of God not only has natural abilities, but also spiritual abilities. And then there are life experiences that the Lord has designed for us to go through that help us to understand who it is we are and how it is we are to live and and what it is we are to do for the kingdom of God. Friends, you can't steer a boat that's not moving. Some of you are, what's God's will? What's God's will? Are you pursuing God? No. Are you moving in any way spiritually? No. Yes, you are. If you're not going forward, you're you're going backward. But if you will go forward, even the slightest bit, the Lord can angle you. If you're not moving, you're not being steered. We are called to pursue the Lord. And as we do that with our natural abilities, with the opportunities, with the spiritual gifts, we discover our destiny and we fulfill it. That's what these men did. As they were pursuing God 
and obeying the Great Commission. Again, Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18 today, just, just because we need to. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As they were living this out, these men were directed in the mission that Jesus had designed for them. Every Christian has a unique mission. It's where you live. It's where you learn. It's where you work. It's where you hang out. If you're not living on mission, you're not going forward. And if you're not going forward, you can't be directed by God. In a few weeks, I've got to go um, to train some of our national partners, and I'm so intimidated by this. I was sharing it with our college students Wednesday night. I'm so intimidated by this. These guys look at me because I have, you know, I've been an ordained pastor longer than some of them have been alive, and, and I've got all these degrees and responsibility, and they think, man, he really knows something. And I'm going to teach them the stuff that I taught you guys on the Holy Spirit uh, after, after Easter, but I'm telling you, I'm so intimidated because these guys are on mission. And I'm supposed to go and say, hey, you ought to be on mission. No, <laughs> they're already on mission. This one guy, for instance, uh, H., he was on vacation last month. While he was on vacation, he baptized 11 people, discipled several group of believers, and helped start one church. On vacation. Another guy, A, he was, um, he was in Western Europe. So what's happening is the people that are being reached with the gospel, some of them are staying. And there are 34 churches that have been planted in the area where I will be, but a lot of them have gone on into Europe. And there are Living Hope Baptist churches being planted all over because of the gift for Christ and because your tithes and offerings as we are supporting this mission work that's going along in the world. He went to go and investigate what was happening in these churches. He was on a train and he heard these three Brits and these Americans talk about the fun they were having. So he said, guys, I got to talk to you. He breaks out the three circles on them. One guy recommits his life to Christ. Another guy, he's now on, on uh, WhatsApp, and he's discipling these guys on mission. Are you on mission? I mean, is that what you think about when you're at school? Is that what you think about when you're at work, when you're at home, when you're, when you're just hanging out? God has called us to make disciples. Think about what living hope is. We are a family of disciples impacting our homes, our neighbors, and every generation with the hope of Jesus. Is this you? Are you making this happen? If not, you're, you're probably spiritually stuck. And if you're not going forward, God's not guiding you because God only guides a moving boat, a moving life. So you gotta be on the move for God. You gotta be on mission and he will guide you and you will be an encouragement. Third, Disciple makers encourage others with the Spirit's activity around them. These men knew that the Spirit of God had been unleashed in them and into the world for a purpose. And they were to join God in that work. You know, sometimes this morning, I had these moments. I was reading Daniel 12 this morning in my time alone with God. And in Daniel 12, God is explaining to Daniel the, the next chapter of the world. What was going to happen geopolitical in his region, but then worldwide. 
And it literally knocked him to his knees. And that's really easy for me to believe. To believe the story of the Bible, creation, fall, rescue, restoration. What's hard sometimes for me is to think, not on the, that God can work on the macro level, but that he would work on the micro level in me. Friends, here's the truth about God. He is accomplishing his purpose in the world. The book of Revelation is written and it's right and it's gonna happen. But he has not forgotten you and me. And our story matters. And he is at work in us right now who believe through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me remind you again of the work of the Holy Spirit and what it is we who've been born again are to do. We, we went over these back in the spring, three verses today, just as, a, as another, another encouragement. First one is Galatians 5.25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit of God is on the move. Are you, are we, are we living on mission? Are we mindful of the Spirit of God's work in us, through us, and around us? One of, one of our partners uh, shared with Pastor Benny, he said, you know, sometimes I, I get fixated on one person who doesn't seem to, to, to be real responsive. And the guy said, it happens all the time. Move on. Pray for them, but move on. The Spirit of God is at work in somebody's life where you live, work, learn, and play, and hang out. Go talk to them. Go share what Jesus is doing in your life. It's your story, the gospel, the three circles. The guy told Benny, he said, just Go. Go, you can't, you can't know how God's gonna work. Be faithful. We gotta keep in step with the Spirit. And we can't grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let me tell you my, my litmus, litmus test on this one. Again, this is me. I have found that I am not grieving the Holy Spirit when I feel the pinch of sacrifice. As disciples of Jesus Christ, this world's not our home. We are here to live on mission for God and the power of the Spirit beyond our own strength and ability. And the Christian life is a life of sacrifice. If we are not feeling the pinch of sacrifice, of time, energy, money, mental, emotional energy, we can probably assume that we are grieving the Holy Spirit. Please listen to me. Grieving the Holy Spirit is, it's not just not committing sin. It's certainly a part of it. To sin is to grieve the Holy Spirit. Committing sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Omitting obedience also grieves the Holy Spirit. That is also a sin. Many Christians, they want to grow to the point of their comfort. Hey, I'm comfortable with where I am. I'm comfortable with my faith. I'm comfortable with what's happened in my life and my family. I'm comfortable with this. Okay, show me in the Bible where that matters. Because see, the Spirit of God has told us in his word to go and make disciples. To give, to serve, to love. And that's, that's hard. There's a pinch in that. Many today who love Jesus are grieving the Holy Spirit because they have omitted obedience.
They're not committing the sin that they once did, but they are not walking obedience to the word of God. Friends, there's supposed to be a pinch. It's supposed to hurt. This is not our home. Why did God give us the spirit? Why did the spirit come? Why did the Holy Spirit come? Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Why did he do that? Why did God give us the Holy Spirit of God? To be comfortable? To get stuff? To feel powerful and pleasured and, and, and to have possessions and popularity? Is that why the Spirit of God came? You will receive power in the Holy Spirit. Why? So you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is why the Spirit of God came. So that we would be on mission for God. So that we would sacrifice emotional energy, mental energy, physical energy, finances. Listen, if all you're going to do is what you feel like doing, you will not obey God. Obedience and walking in the Spirit demands sacrifice. And that's why he came. Friends, a hundred years from now, we're not going to talk about whether or not we were comfortable. We're not going to talk about what we had. All that will matter is what we did for the glory of God. As a matter of fact, there will be some who will be quite ashamed of what they had. They won't want to talk about the income that they had or the, 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 the position of authority they had in the company or, or the opportunities that they had in the world. They, want to, they, don't want to, they won't want to talk about those because they'll know in their heart of hearts they'd squandered them, that they had not invested them in what matters most. Friends, a hundred years from now, all that is going to matter to you is what you did for the glory of God. A thousand years from now, all you're going to care about is what you did for the glory of God. Friends, a million years from now, you will still be you and you will exist. And all that will matter is what you did with Jesus Christ and the gospel to the glory of the Father and the power of the Spirit in the name of Jesus. So this morning, some of you need to come and be saved. You need to pick a spot that you can point to 10 years from now and say, that's where I repent and believed. Some of you are children of the living God. You need to come repent. You need to say, Lord, I'm not on mission. I'm not an encouragement. I'm not a picture of a disciple. Forgive me. Revive me. Use me. Some of you know of situations where people are hurting. God often brings people to faith in those moments. Come pray that they will be saved and that you will be a conduit of that message of the gospel. Come pray for the gift of Christ. Come pray for revival. Come leaders and pray for our revival. Let's stand together as we pray. Father, your word is true and you are good. Father, the fact of the matter is you don't need us. And if individually we won't step up, 
You'll call on someone else who will. And if we won't step up as a church, we'll die and you'll raise up another who will. Father, we believe, help our unbelief. Father, I pray that right now you will save some, that you will renew all, that you will hear the prayers of your people as they come asking on behalf of others that they might be saved, asking that you would revive our congregation for your glory and our blessing. Lord, hear us now as we, as we pray, as we praise you. Come and pray.